0: Making art, whether you do it solo or in a group, derives its patterns from everything around us in an interdependent network. We learn to work as nature does with the material of ourselves, our body, our mind, our companions, and the radical possibilities of the present moment. Stephen Nakhmanovich, The Art of Is. Welcome to Movement and Creativity Podcast, an intersection of the Feldenkrais Method, Organic Intelligence, Authentic Movement, and Creative Process. In this third episode, I share an interview I did with Stephen Nakamanovich, the author of Free Play and the Art of Is. I learned about Stephen Nakamanovich in my Authentic Movement training with Alton Wasson and Daphne Lowell. They shared excerpts from his book, Free Play, Improvisation in Life and Art, as a part of our authentic movement training. And I have returned to the book again and again with sticky notes and highlights and underlines and open up the book whenever I need a little inspiration. And after reading his new book, The Art of Is, I got these waves again and again of, oh, I want to interview him, I want to interview him, and... Stephen has also agreed to allow me to begin each episode of Movement and Creativity Podcast with a quote from one of his books. In episode number two, I shared some excerpts of this interview, and here
1: is the full thing. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you.
0: Yeah, nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for carving this time out.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: I know you're... Getting ready to embark on this uh, this journey of your surgery and yes yeah how are you doing with that
1: well um, mixed of course I mean uh, there are t- certain times when I have gruesome imagery and other times when I find it very interesting uh, I feel that my job when I'm unconscious is to make sure that the surgeons have a really, really good experience.
0: <laughs> nice. know, <laughs> yeah. Nice.
1: So I want them to come back the next day and tell me that they never had it so easy.
0: Nice. I love yeah. that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I've just been listening and reading your, your books. Um, lately and um, just out of my own curiosity and desire. And then it just came up again and again. Ah, I really want to interview you. And, and every single quote is not every single quote, but like every other paragraph. I'm like, Oh, this light bulb goes off for this gem of gold, golden. Yeah. It's wonderful.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm curious how, how do you see your books as different from one another.
1: So, yeah, they're um, there's certain, you know, they both come from a certain common perspective, but free play was more about the spiritual insides of the creative process. Hmm. And the art of is is more about the social and interpersonal outsides of the creative process.
0: Hmm.
1: Hmm.
0: And of course, those are connected <laughs> they're,
1: they're deeply intertwined you know yeah. and they're they're um the difference is partly just in my own life course i mean i i spent 7 years writing free play and then 25 years writing the art of is mm. and um during those 25 years um because of free play i had the privilege of traveling a lot and doing a lot of performances and workshops and talks. So I found myself interacting with a huge variety of people in many fields and finding the common threads in their creative experiences, regardless of whether they were in the arts or the sciences or whatever they might be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and at the same time, of course, I also um, co-raised a family with my wife And that's an intense personal experience, interpersonal experience, an intense experience of surrender. And as you may have read in the um, acknowledgments at the end of the book, um, this book, The Art of Is really started four months with a talk that I gave four months before my son Jack was born. And it had to wait 25 years for him to become a man, a poet, and an editor so that he could help me finish it so Um, so, you know that's extraordinary and and um and then at a more than personal to me level uh i mean it's interesting i had not planned it was already clear in the early 1990s when i first started creating some of the material that became the art of is that uh we politically we're living in a very dicey time when, um, when creative activity was seen as threatening by many forces in the world and where you know, the Buddhist three poisons of greed, hate, and delusion were on the rise. But I could not have imagined that by the time it came out, we would be in the really insane time that we're in now. And um, it is so important for us to realize where we are, what world we're living in, who our partners are, how we can connect with them, what we can improvise with since the um, sign-sealed and delivered methods of the past are not necessarily working anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I love how you... I feel like you've really introduced me to this land of improvisation as, you know, beyond music, beyond specific creative process, but you're really taking it to, like, to everything. Yeah. And and it just feels like what the world needs. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. I'm curious about when you teach, from some of the material from the book, do you improvise your teaching?
1: Well, of course. I I mean, it's partly because I have almost no memory at all. (laughs) Even if I make a plan, you know, I mean, I actually have occasionally before I'm giving a talk or a workshop, I have, um, you know, written down some plans and some ideas of what I might do. But believe me, when I get into that room, I don't remember them. (laughs) <laughs> so there's really uh, and and uh, there's several chapters in the book that actually are pretty straight transcripts of uh, improvisational talks that I gave mm. uh, the chapter called All About Frogs mm. um, the chapter Art and Power about Herbert Zipper um, were really uh, the finger kissing chapter uh, when I give talks I can't predict what I'm going to say, or I think about what I'm going to say, but I can't really know what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I record everything. And then you can get some nice person to transcribe the recording <laughs> and then edit it and fix it up a little bit. And then it becomes mm-hmm. a chapter. So there's mm-hmm. the way in which I was d- during the years that the book was assembling itself, uh, I was discovering what it was about and what seems to be needed by being in the room with people. You know, in many of those chapters that were straight talks, I was in the room with people, Mm. and we were experiencing something together. Mm. And I try to capture some of that.
0: Mm. Mm. And did you have experience as a teacher for years before... All of this? As a teacher. Oh, hmm I know you're a music- musician, yes. but I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. And have you, and was that, has that always been your approach to teaching, or was there a time when it was more?
1: No, it's always been my approach to teaching. I mean, I really, uh, you know, I was, um, um, I mean, I started teaching fairly young, and then I was a grad student in psychology, anthropology, various fields, and uh, you know, taught students and then taught for, you know, I was a, a professor for a few years and then then I became an intermittent professor and doing my art career, but uh, teaching at various institutions from time to time. And uh, now I see the insides of a lot of universities for three or four days at a time. Mm. Um, and um, so, yeah, and and in a sense, my approach to teaching has always been the same because I've never had that kind of memory that could say, okay, um, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to do it, and here's the syllabus. And uh, when I am in front of a group, I mean, here you and I, we haven't met in person, but we're talking through the screen here. So we've never talked before, and um, I can only talk to you by looking at you and talking with you. So if I had a piece of paper in front of me with notes, I wouldn't be looking at you or talking to you. Mm -hmm. So teaching is like that for me. I've never Mm -hmm. been comfortable. uh, And of course there are always institutions that want you to have a syllabus and want you to know what you're going to do before you do it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, many, when people who are friends of mine or who work with me and, various places are, they are faced with that, faced with the demands that from their institutions that they produce a syllabus. Um, You know, I tell them, I mean, first of all, that's rendering unto Caesar that, which is Caesar's. And if the institution won't pay you unless you have a syllabus, that's fine, you know, and produce a syllabus. Uh, And that can be an interesting writing exercise in itself, but then once you get into the room with the students, you want to be with them. Mm. You don't want to have your attention divided mm. between who is in the room and what was on the piece of paper last night.
0: Mm. It's funny because as you're saying this, I, you know, I have this. A few notes scratched here. So, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: it's interesting. It's also also interesting, you know, because very often I've been in the situation where, let's say I'm invited to give a talk. And um, so I'll be up in the hotel room the night before writing up a bunch of notes and a bunch of ideas of what I want to talk about. And then the next morning I give the talk and I do in fact talk about some of those things, but then I forget a lot of them too. And then the next day I'm going, Oh shoot. You know, I wish I could have said X, mm-hmm. but it's too late. Of <laughs> course that's what they call l'esprit, d'escalier, l'esprit de l'escalier in French. And, uh, you know, we talk about that somewhat in the book, but that's a feature of life, you know, It's a feature of life that you always want to do certain things and you don't do them all and you regret some of them, and that's okay.
0: Yeah. (laughs) And can you say a little bit about how that was happening as you were parenting and raising your children in terms of having this strong, creative life (laughs) and how you danced with that? I have two little ones right
1: now. Yes. How old are they?
0: Three, almost four, and six.
1: Oh, congratulations! (laughs) Well, mine are twenty-two and twenty-six, and um, I mean, part of it is, uh, you know, again, it's a. If I were to give another title to the book, to the theme of the book, it's balance. Hmm. You know, the like the essence of all art, whether it's the art of playing music or the art of dance or the art of parenting, it's balance. You know, and you want your, um, you know, you want your children to be respected and liked, and do well in school, and that sort of thing. You also see all the ways in which um, certain forces in the school are inimical to your children's well-being, and you have to uh, protect them from that. Um, but you also want them to learn that they live in a society where a lot of those inimical forces are present. And so they will have to learn the skill of dealing with them themselves. And, uh, you know, just as uh, in having a small child, you know, you're you're constantly uh, oscillating between uh, how annoying they are and how demanding they are and how smart they are and how interesting they are and how much you learn from them. And uh, that's all the annoyances and the learning are all part of it. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to say, okay, from three to five, you're going to be a brat and I'll be really pissed off. And then from five to seven, you'll be a little genius and I'll be amazed by your insights into the physical and social worlds. You know, it's all mixed together.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. I've been curious... Two, to hear you share a little bit more about your understanding of the muse, because I know you write a lot about that. But when I read and hear you yeah. write about that, it's like drinking water. I just, uh-huh. I'm just so interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so yeah, what's your understanding of the muse or experience of the muse right now? Or,
1: well, um, yeah. right now you and I, well, okay, to work backwards from the art, let's work forwards from the play. <laughs> So forwards from free play, um, there you have the musical experience of standing up with an instrument and making sounds and gestures with it that you did not predict and didn't, um, you know, you didn't plan on them, you didn't do anything other than you did plan to pick up your instrument and spend some time with them. Okay, so who thought of that music? Okay, some people uh, really have an experience of dictation, and that there is a, as it were, a personality or muse who is who is presenting something to you, and your job is just to write it down or play the notes or something, and you learn and you discover. And of course there is no such person and um, I'm really not interested in new age woo-woo concepts of entities and stuff like that, whatever they might be. Um, So that experience of the muse is really the experience of the unconscious of your own totality of experience, including your experience of other people. Okay. And what you, everything that you've read all the music you've liked, all the music you have not liked, uh, everything that's gone around you is somehow present for you. And most of it is not consciously available. And most of it is probably trivial. But certain times those, um, those things all kind of mix together in the pot and come out as a voice. And it's really great to listen to that voice. And then to work backwards from The Art of Is, I remembered there um, one of these um, conferences that I was at. I I remember it was on Aran Island in Ireland, and um, there was a group of us at a table, and a lot of people were like neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists and people like that, and uh, somebody uh, was asking, where does creativity come from? And so we went down the line and different people mentioned, you know, whatever was their currently favorite part of the brain or various psychosocial phenomena or various, you know, phenomena of training. And when it got to be my turn, I said, the source of creativity is other people. So that's the muse, is other people. So right now you and I are talking. So if you are presenting things to me to react to, you're the muse. Mm. And then an hour from now, we'll both be talking to somebody else or by ourselves or doing whatever we're doing. And that situation is the muse. Mm. So it's really about, you know, there's no such thing as a muse, of course. uh, But what there is is receptivity.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, this multidimensional feedback. I just love that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a quote that I wrote down. I was curious to hear you say a little bit more about, we co-create something that arises out of listening and mutual attentiveness. We discover that the nervous system is bigger than the brain, bigger than the body.
1: Yes. Well, that is... um, uh, I was going to say it's something that I learned from my teacher, Gregory Bateson. Uh, but let's say it's something that I learned from being alive and experienced. But Gregory Bateson taught me how to say it. And he, he, he he's dead for many years now. He died in 1980. But he, um, in one of his papers, in Steps to an Ecology of Mind, he talks about the blind person with the stick. You know, we have this idea, uh, especially in the social sciences uh, of the person as something that exists with a skin around it and there's an inside and there's an outside. You know, and we talk about internal experiences and social experiences and so on. So he gives the example of the blind person. So if the, if the nervous system of the blind person is dependent on the stick and he or she is very successfully tapping their way through the city, uh, paying attention to everything around them and walking, and then the person sits down on a bench and eats a sandwich and they fold up the stick and just put it down on the bench. So when the blind person was walking, is the the boundary of the person the skin, or is it the end of the stick? Or is it halfway up the stick? Or if when the stick is folded up while the sandwich is being eaten, has that disappeared? you know it's all you know as, as soon as you start questioning these things it becomes meaningless the whole the whole idea of inside and outside becomes meaningless and you understand that your nervous system is all the way outside your body and all the way inside and uh you're you're perceiving through every medium that you're present in okay and this is completely congruent with the buddhist idea uh, of emptiness of inherent existence and what is empty it, obviously things are real and you're real and it all exists okay but uh if you um the only the only thing that you're empty of is an independent inherent existence bonded by the skin with an inside and an outside you know you're talking through a microphone and the microphone is made of metals and plastics and wires. And all of those were manufactured from different places that were mined. Uh, so the lives of the miners are in that microphone. The history of the ideas of electricity and uh, telephony and uh, audio engineering are in the microphone uh, the lives of the people who manufactured it probably in China are in the microphone, the social relations and so forth. So the microphone or any object that you, you know, your earrings, your, your nose, you know, any, any object that's present, whether it's, you know, our physical being or a supposedly external object is full of infinitely many stories. It's full of infinitely many interconnections. The only thing it's empty of is an independent existence all by itself. Mm -hmm. And that is what you, if you imagine what you rely upon when you improvise or create, that is what you rely upon because you are um, present with a, Throughout your body and mind and social relations and instruments and toys and tools, you are present with an extraordinary fund of information that's all around you. Mm-hmm. And so you just pick little tiny bits of it. Of course, you can only understand little tiny bits of it at any one time. So you pick those bits that you can understand and you make something of it. But there's always something there. There's always infinitely much there. Mm
0: -hmm. And how would you say that Gregory Bateson helped you talk about it?
1: Well, because he connected it through a lot of these ideas um, were current in both Eastern and Western mysticisms. Um, But he was a scientist. He was a biologist. And he talked about these things in ways that were um, extremely concrete. I mean, many scientists thought of him as quite weird, but actually he was um, extremely concrete and extremely tied to the data of the world. You know? And he was extraordinarily eloquent. He had that wonderful English way with words that was really nice. And he also, in the course of his work on uh, the systemic nature of the living world that we live in and that we are tied to and that we might destroy if we don't straighten up a little bit, um, he was also tied into a lot of the great artistic and literary traditions, even though he himself was not an artist. Um, And he put me on to William Blake, And uh, Blake was a huge influence. I did my PhD thesis on Blake with Gregory. And Blake was a huge influence on my life because he, again, um, had this perspective about, you know, there are people who are scholars of creativity um, who talk about art, but when you read Blake, you realize that you can't talk about art without going out and doing it. Mm. and you can't talk about going out and doing art without an awareness of the total world that you inhabit. Mm.
0: Hmm. That's interesting because it makes me think that maybe part of why I'm venturing into this talking about creativity more in the foreground rather than just doing it is that I feel I am stepping into this time when I'm more connected to other people. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Direct relationship. Cool. And I know that he was a big influence on you in a lot of ways. Do you want to say anything else about how he influenced you?
1: Well, he was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) And he was often talking about the really most difficult things about how, about the, uh, let's say the psychological roots of the ecological crisis, Mm. which he saw, and he was talking about the greenhouse effect in 1968, Mm. you know, and here we are all these decades later Mm. in the middle of it, you know, Mm. not having learned the lessons that he and other people at that time had to teach. Uh, And yet at the same time, he had this extraordinary charm and humor Mm-hmm. And talking about these things. And that was really quite extraordinary.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Did you have another teacher that was all that's up there in your influences? Well, there were
1: several. I was very, very fortunate in my life to have had I mean Gregory was really my sort of lifetime mentor. Um, when I was young. But I did have, I was very very fortunate to run into a number of really extraordinary teachers. Uh, One of them was Yehudi Menuhin, the violinist, who really um, kind of, when I met him, uh, it was actually right about, the right just about the time that Gregory died, uh, just before that. But Menuhin really kind of ratified for me, the weird path as a musician that I took and really encouraged me and was really quite an extraordinary person. And he, sort of like Pablo Casals, whom I would have loved to meet but never did, um, was one of the musicians who really saw music as a nexus that connects people to their deepest responsibility in the world rather than a kind of artistic, uh, impressive display. Mm. So he was really quite extraordinary. Uh, I had a mentor in psychology named Jerome Bruner, uh, who was very, uh, you know, had this very penetrating mind, also was very witty in his way, um, really directed me when I was very young to the study of play Say that again,
0: it got cut out a little bit. Sorry, the
1: study of play, Mm -hmm. which of course is how I came to Bateson also. And, uh, you know, when you play, um, well, there's a wonderful statement by a um, Greek psychologist about Bateson, that the day that Bateson was looking at the otters playing in the San Francisco Zoo, and knew that they were able to signal to each other that they are playing. This was a moment in science, almost like Archimedes (laughs) sitting in the bathtub and seeing the volume of water displaced by his body. I mean, it really was a fundamental change in our understanding of things to know that animals can classify their activity. They're not just doing what they call you know, what we call behavior. Mm. They are um, that all living creatures are to some extent operating on multiple mental levels at once and multiple levels of interaction with their environment. So for a dog to know that they're playing and to signal to you very precisely about the nature of play mm. is an extraordinary thing. It's very complex, and it opens up the whole world of, you know, communication theory, um, many many levels of understanding come of what it is to be human come through understanding play.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about also you write a lot about imperfection, making mistakes, and the obstacles and limits that come as a part of the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah, I always appreciate hearing that.
1: Yes. Well, believe me, imperfection is my business.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the the thing about the interaction between improvisation and editing, too, in terms of the creative process and this, like, allowing there to be this free play and then there's this editing that can come in at a certain moment, but that you also need to have a playful... Right of doing that otherwise it, it stops you but you need you kind of need both right you need both you, need both, you, you
1: know
0: go along yeah, yeah.
1: but you know. yeah you have to be i mean in um the art of is i quote from my friend al wonder who's a uh, kind of a guru of dance and motion theater uh who talks about the uh, child who's walking for the first time and uh, let's say the one-year-old boy or girl is, you know, you ha- you, uh, the, a group of adults might be lucky enough to be there at the moment that the kid takes their first steps. And, um, of course, everybody is, like, cheering and clapping. Now,
0: Unless you're a Feldenkrais practitioner parent and you know not to say anything.
1: <laughs> there you go. But, okay. you know, the thing is, people, nobody says, well... If you, if you hold your back up straight, you know, and of course the kid is falls. The kid takes two steps and then falls down and gets up and then takes three more steps and then falls down and gets up. So it's not like they're walking well, you know, but nobody is saying to the kid, well, next time if you hold your back straighter and lift your knees higher, you'll walk even better. But almost all of our teaching in the arts is based on that idea of the, the, uh, the helpful suggestion, the person giving the helpful suggestion, let's say you know i'm a, am a fan of classical music, so I've seen a lot of really great artists giving master classes to you know very, very talented students. and it's always um, you know the student gets up and plays a selection of Beethoven or whatever. And then the teacher listens for a while, and then waves their hand and, and stops them, and uh, says, "Well, maybe you might even try doing it like this, you know?" And um, and why are you doing that, you know? And they're offering, you know, in a, in in a spirit of real kindness and and uh, you know, trying to be nice, but actually to allow the student to do something that's imperfect and recognize that and correct themselves or find new ways of doing it themselves is really difficult, you know. Like when you talked about the Feldenkrais teacher whose response to the kid walking is is to not say anything. I mean, that's actually hard to do. That's a, that's a real shutting up and saying nothing is a skill that takes a long time to learn. mm mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and to go back to Bateson, um, at one point, um, I was his teaching assistant and we were in a seminar of whatever, 15 or 20 people. And so, um, something was going on in the discussion and then there was a quiet. And then I said something or other, which was on the order of, you know, the smart young man showing off his knowledge. And, um, so after the class departed, Bateson turned to me and he said, "You monkey! I had a nice, juicy silence cooking up there, and you had to stick your feet in and muck it up." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, finally, now that I'm an old man myself, I can go into a classroom um, or workshop space and um, really say nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting what happens when you, as a teacher, keep your mouth shut Hmm. and allow the embarrassing silence to run its course and allow the discomfort to run its course and then see what emerges and allow people to shape their own activity together out of what emerges. And then you might say a little bit later, but. Not much, you know. Mm, so mm. the older I get, the less I have to say.
0: Mm. That's great. My um, I was there with my daughter when she first stood up, and I did videotape it, but tried not to let her know that I was doing it. And right. she was so delighted and so ecstatic. She stood up, and then she immediately sat down, and she grabbed her feet and was like, <gasps> Wow. She was just like, ah! Oh! And then she stood up again, and then she sat down, and she was like, held her feet, and she was like, "Whoa, these feet do this! I can stand on them." It was amazing. <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, that's extraordinary. It
0: was amazing, but yeah, to give her that space to find that herself and not mess with it, you know?
1: Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's interesting because as as we're talking, I'm thinking about my. Experience as a teacher, and I started teaching Feldenkrais Awareness through Movement, like group classes, like 15 years ago. And that was really my first experience teaching. I mean, maybe I had taught a little bit of art or creative writing, more kind of holding the space, but actually teaching something, and it was like there's a form to it. And so I think I'm entering this period of like where I've been living with this question. What would I teach if I wasn't teaching what I've been taught? And it's led me in these different directions, but I still keep coming back to Feldenkrais. And I was listening earlier today, this part in free play where you talk about, you know, you're playing the violin and then you get to this point where you're like, I'm done, you know, I've done everything that there is to do. And then something happens and I feel like that keeps happening with Feldenkrais where I'm kind of like take it and take it and take it and then I'm like, ah, oh, I'm so sick of myself and I keep having the same intonations and there's this certain thing I do and there's this way I'm thinking about it that's so fixed and and then I think I'm going to let it go and then it just comes back again reorganized and better synthesized and something else is in it and... Yeah, but I'm curious about the thing about teaching without the, some structure because the the way I've been taught is that there are these lessons, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There and then is.
0: there's pe- then there's people who say no, but if you can't make up lessons and if you can't teach it just off the fly, then you can- you're not really doing the work anyway. So you, but I I don't know. So it's it's a question. It's a. Yeah.
1: Well, again, the name of the game, the name of the whole game is balance. Right. So it's partly it's balance between. I mean, obviously, if what you're teaching is organic chemistry, <laughs> then there's certain things that the students, you know, that you you know, so the 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 way uh, carbon atoms interact with hydrogen and oxygen atoms and nitrogen atoms, and the shapes that they form and the ways to work with them. I mean, these are things that are out there that you want to teach to the students. However, um, the way in which you teach it or what each individual student is ready for at that moment. Or, what particular sub language they'll understand, you can never predict. Mm-hmm. So, you're always doing like this balance between, you know, form and um, self discovery, play, chaos, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's true also in, let's say, in the art of music, okay, because whether you're improvising or you're composing there is going to be a balance between structures that people can perceive and understand and take home with them and new chaos around the edges that extends and is fun and has energy. Mm -hmm. So if you have, regardless of what style of music or what century it is, um, the really interesting music maintains somewhere near that balance where, you know, if there's too much structure, then it's boring. And if there's too much chaos, then it's also boring.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah.
1: And so we're constantly wiggling across that boundary place.
0: Mm -hmm. The thing that I have been keyed into in reading slash listening to your books Lately is the Gregory Bateson beauty is the pattern that connects or the pattern which connects. I think he's both at different is times.
1: recognizing the pattern, which connects
0: recognizing. Yeah. Yeah. And since then I've just been seeing the, this idea of patterns show up again and again in your books and also really appreciating that idea in seeing the patterns in my yeah. life and in my creative process and in yeah what's evolving right now in my teaching and my thinking and I love that so good
1: that's great congratulations
0: yeah yeah it's a really rich idea and thread great yeah yeah cool well thank you for Having this conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, if there's one thing you would want to leave someone who's listening to this with, what would that
1: be? Well, there's so many things. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate the complexity of the world and don't shrink from it. Mm. And don't shrink from your interconnections with everyone around you. And the more playful you can be in. Understanding those interactions, even in very serious situations, uh, the more open to new creativity you'll be.
0: Mm. Love that. It's, so it it feels very in line with when I've been reading your books. Yeah. It just feels like it's speaking to where I'm at in my creative process right now in terms of wanting to create this podcast that's yeah. kind of like a collage of things. Yeah. And yeah, it's just this this intersecting what you're doing with your writing and your thinking and your right. being is this, is that, this intersect.
1: I, I have a doorbell that just ran.
0: Oh, okay, perfect. answer it,
1: hold on. Okay. Well... Um, I'm going to have to go in a minute, but that was the U.S. Census Bureau. Mm. So I can now officially report to you that I exist. (laughs)
0: Great. (laughs) Yay.
1: So there it is. Mm. Well, thank you so much. This was really nice, and I really enjoyed talking with you. So, uh, you know, as you know, I'll be out of commission for... A while, let's say yeah. a couple of months. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, it, it all depends on what stage of recovery you're talking about, but I'll certainly be able to talk to people again in a couple of months. Yeah. So we'll see, you know, just contact me down the line and we can okay. do. These two.
0: Sounds good. I will. Okay. And I hope that those um, doctors have a really great experience.
1: Hey, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye. Well, until the next time. Okay. Take sounds care. good.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Stephen Nakmanovich and his books and teaching, you can visit freeplay.com. I'm Tiffany Sankri, your host and curator, creator of this podcast. You can learn more about my work at movementandcreativity.com, where you can find online courses and an online library of over 200 Feldenkrais lessons, creative process invitations movement in organic intelligence practices and a supportive community for living an embodied, creative, and playful life. Lastly, I'd like to thank Danny Paul Grody for allowing me to use his beautiful music in this podcast.